The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I don't know how many of you men particularly, more like I am, and for many, many years you have enjoyed living life on the edge. And I only mean that in one area, See, the area in which I like to live my life on the edge most often, and that has to do with putting fuel in your car. How many of you like to drive it with that hand all the way over on the E? You can see the light coming on, but you have already learned how many miles per gallon you can get, and you have learned how far you can go, and you can estimate distances between one place and another, so rarely, if ever, have you run out of gas. Now, you may have lived that way or may not, but I'll assure you most times your wife has never lived in that position. She never wanted it to be that way. She understood the dangers of running out of gas in a strange place or maybe in the middle of traffic. And, you know, it is the case that more times than not, if you see those who've ran out of gas, that's basically where they are. Either out in the middle of nowhere where there's nowhere to, uh, to gain that gas to get fuel from or, or they find themselves in the middle of a dangerous intersection. I've noticed that many, even if they know that they're going to run out of gas and and they try to make it off the roadway. They don't get very far. Maybe they're right there on the shoulder. They're still in harm's way. And so because of that, to me, uh, playing that card, if you will, trying to make that car go just a little bit farther on that small amount of gas is living on the edge. But, you know, very similar to that, when a Christian tries to live their life without prayer, they're likewise living on the edge. More times than not, as they try to go without prayer at any point in their lives, I mean, at any point, even daily, if we're not praying often daily, we're living on the edge. We're living without access to the fuel, if you will, that will keep our wheels turning. And more times than not, if you fail to pray, you're going to find yourselves off on a shoulder somewhere and in the middle of an intersection or maybe lost in the middle of nowhere all because you fail to pray. I know that you realize this is a praying congregation. As a matter of fact, what we're talking about this hour is the praying church, the praying church and how important it is to pray. I know that you realize just how powerful prayer is. You realize that God commanded it upon us. As a matter of fact, while our Lord was here on this earth, standing with two feet, speaking with one mouth, he proclaimed upon us in Luke 18 and verse 1 that men ought to always pray and faint not. Now, what he meant by that is very simple. He's saying we need to pray and pray and pray, and pray, and pray. On and on and on we need to do that. We understand the power of prayer. And we'll mention this verse perhaps a little bit later. James 5 verse 16, the latter part of it, tells us the effectual and even the fervent prayer. That is the burning desire to pray. The effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We would say in Alabama, it does an awful lot of good. And that's what prayer will do. We understand from what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. I understand the word prayer is not used in this text, but it is the same idea, telling us in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, unto him, that is speaking of God, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly, watch this, above all that which we ask, that is prayer, friends, or think. According to his power, that's God's power that worketh within us. So there is a need to pray. There's a commandment to pray. There is a necessity that we understand prayer. And a praying church is a church that's going to continue to be moving. A church is going to continue to grow, continue to develop, at least spiritually, if not numerically in another area. So I want to examine that with you. Go with me, if you would, to the Sermon on the Mount. When I was here for those months and months back about two years ago, 
We had attempted to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. There was about two sections of Scripture we did not make it to. This will be one of them. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Begin reading with me, if you would, in just a moment. We're going to pick up in verse number 7. You'll be familiar with it, and that's not by accident. I love to speak and to go back to familiar text over and over for my own studies, and I think that that's beneficial to us. I know that it is any time that we can do it even as a group. Matthew chapter 7, pick up the reading in verse 7. Here's what the Scriptures say. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receive it. And he that seeketh, findeth. And he that knocketh, it shall be opened. I want to add the context to it that's important. Verse 9 continues and says, Or what man is there of you, whom if he have a son, ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? And if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more is your Father, which is in heaven, give good things unto him that ask him? Now, I want to clarify there in verse 11. He's not speaking of men being evil to the core and such as that, mean or whatever it is. He's just saying in comparison to God and his greatness and his goodness, yes, we're evil. And he's saying that if God uh, gives good things, we know that he does, that proves his greatness. But if a man also gives good things, that proves his goodness. And we want to add to it now. Now, verse 12, for the rest of the context, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do, do ye even so to them, for this is for the law and the prophets. Now, the context here can be boiled out or put into different, different uh, thoughts, different ideas, various applications, but the main brunt of the context is what was found there in verse 7, and it all has to do with prayer. How important prayer is, how prayer is to be performed, what is to be uh, spoken of was preceding chapter, chapter 6. We would have found that if we were to go back to study it, verses 5 through the end of the chapter and such. But when we think about prayer, we understand just how important it is. Now, I want to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not trying to embarrass you, but I, th I don't think that I will. How many of you in, in, in your lives daily, on a daily basis, at some point, pray at least once? I felt very comfortable being able to do that here. I'm sure there are places you could say that and, and you wouldn't have hands go up. And, of course, that would be embarrassing to both of us. We as children of God, we are supposed to, and we typically take the opportunity to pray. Now, I want to take this scripture, these references we've just read. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. And I want to notice with you about three things that we have to be reminded of if we're going to be a praying church. And when I say a praying church, I'm speaking of us collectively as a group but understanding that the church is made up of its members and each of us are a part of that church and we have our responsibility in this area. The first phrase or so that you saw in there in verse 7 said, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now why is that? Number one, there is a promise to claim. When we understand what God is laying upon us, what God is requiring or requesting of us right here, we know that when He gives us this pattern for prayer, that ask, that seek, that knock, He then came behind that in verse 8 and told us, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, here's what will happen for those actions. And that's a promise. Now, I understand the greatest promise that was ever given, perhaps, or it no doubt was, the promise of His Son. You can read of that as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I understand that when God began to give uh, oral revelation, in turn written revelation that we have today, the Scriptures themselves, as referred to in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 
I understand how great that is, how wonderful that promise is. But to the child of God, I mean by that one who's already obeyed the gospel, one who's already functioning as a faithful child of God, the greatest promise he gives to us is the promise of answered prayer. There's really no doubt about that. There's a promise to claim. Now, I want you to notice a few things about that, just to break it down a little bit farther. When you think about prayer itself, you know, there is no substitute for it. There's no substitute for prayer. For example, someone can't say, well, you know, I'm a fairly eloquent individual. I mean by that I can speak well. I'm not claiming that I can. I'm supposing someone would say that. I'm one who can speak well. I can take those vehicles of communication known as words and I can put them together in a good way and therefore I'm, I, I deserve every gift from God. Well, that has nothing to do with God's blessing. Someone says, well, uh, better than that, I'm very intelligent. I have smarts about me, we might say it. Uh, I'm able to, uh, to think and to put my thoughts into practice in what I do. Well, that's great, that's lovely, that's wonderful, but that cannot replace our prayer. Someone says, well, I tell you what, when it comes to service for the church, one of the things I'm able to do because I'm blessed in certain areas, I can give to the church financially. I have means, I have wealth, and I can share that with the church, and they can in turn share that to the spreading of the gospel. And that's great. Friends, that won't do anything in the world to save your prayer life if it's non-existent. And I could take our time and probably by that point waste our time to think about our energies, our, our enthusiasm, and all that we claim that we have. But if we do not have prayer, we do not have proper access to God that He's allowed us to have. There's a promise to claim in these areas. Now, if you think about it then from that perspective, prayer is probably, in my estimation, this is only my estimation, that's my disclaimer, Prayer is probably the, the worst uh, or the greatest untapped resource that we have at our disposal as Christians. Now, you think about physical resources, we have learned to harness the power to an extent of water. Hence, you find all over our nation great dams that were built. Most of, most of them were built just post-World War II. Those dams can harness the power of that water as it rushes through. They turn turbines, and therefore, we turn on our lights. We've learned to harness the power simply of the wind of even the sun through solar power. We can take hold of those things. We learned back uh, several decades ago to harness the supposed power of an atom, the splitting of the atom, the making of the nuclear warheads and the bombs and such as that. We hadn't met with power until we understand and comprehend the power that God gives us through prayer. Now looking at it again, just to read across it, he said, if you ask, you seek, and you knock. If you ask, you'll receive it. If you seek, you'll find it. If you knock, that door will be open. Now somebody steps back from that and they say, wait a minute now. When we think about prayer for what it is, I understand that I've prayed in the past and I've not necessarily gotten what I desire. I've even begged of God in certain situations and God's not necessarily offered to me or granted unto me my wishes. Well, that very well may be the case and he's going to speak on that matter as we go a little bit farther in this. But we have to know, yes, there is a promise to claim. There's something that needs to be done. Now, if that is our greatest resource, we have to understand how that resource is to be used. I may have used these same terms before. I know we got through, as far as I can re recollect at least, we got through chapter 6, the most of it at least. And so we're in chapter 7. We're just past where we were two years ago. But I know we've already talked about prayer to an extent because of what is discussed in chapter 6. That's what is known as the model prayer. Some call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not just His prayer. It's a prayer by which we set our precedence. 
That is our standard. But, you know, prayer has a certain purpose about it, and it doesn't have anything to do with what people typically use. For example, some pray to God because they think they need to inform God of something. They think they need to tell God about their lives and about their situations, about how they're living, and they're trying to tell God, you don't necessarily, and I'm saying the way some would, if they're hurting, for example, God, you don't know what I'm going through right now. And you need to know because if you only knew and you only understood, maybe you would help more. We don't pray to inform God. As a matter of fact, over across the page, I've already referenced it a few times, but if you go back across the page, verse 8 of chapter 6 says, But when you therefore liken to them, he's speaking of prayer in that context too, for your Father knoweth what you have need of before you ask. I have an acquaintance, a friend from years gone by for some time in his life, and I'm not trying to uh, completely throw him under the bus because he's recovered from his ailment apparently, but for some time in his life he actually would say with his mouth and believe, I don't have to pray because why? Because he said, well, the Bible teaches right here, chapter 6 and verse 8, God already knows what I need. Why cry out to God? He knows what I need. There's no reason to inform him, and there's an extent where that's true. God does know our need. And before we really think about that, let's move into the next idea. Secondly, we do not pray to inform God, but we don't pray to instruct God either. Prayer is not our open door to tell God what to do. I shouldn't be spending my prayer time saying, God, you know, since you do know the situation, I'm going to give you that much credit, God. Here's what you need to do. I can't think about prayer that way. You say, well, why do we pray then? If we're not praying to instruct God or to inform God, we're not praying to instruct God, why are we praying? We're praying to invite God. To call upon God to be a part of our lives, which He already desires to be a part of. God already wants to be a part of our decision-making process, for example. And by the way, as a side note, you have to understand that if you're going to make any decision, I underline that word in my mind, any decision in life, God ought to be a part of it. You say, well, uh, you know, some things are just, are just, some things just don't matter. Some things are no big deal. I knew of a man one time, supposedly, he came by this donut shop on the way to work every day. And every day he was tempted to go by that donut shop. You know the one I'm talking about, the light was on, so he knew it was hot inside. And this day he, he knew he didn't need to go. He just knew it. I've eaten too many of those donuts over the years. This is the day I've got to stop. I, I can't do it anymore. But as he got closer and closer to that certain area of town, he told himself, he said, you know, I won't stop at that donut shop unless there's a parking place right at the front door. So he moved closer. And you know what? There was a place at the front door after he had circled the block seven times. He kept on and kept on going about himself. He kept on looking, and he found what he wanted. That's something he's going to be taught in the same context. The idea of persistence. So there's a promise to claim, and the promise is from God, very simply stated, verses 7 and 8, tying them together, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, you will receive. And that's the way God has it laying out for us. Now, what is it that we need prayer for? I'm going to just add this as an insert to there. Why is it that we need to pray? I've already said we need to pray to invite God. 
But there's really more to it than that. If you've got your Bibles open there, the book of Matthew, go over Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go over the book of John with me. Look in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. You're going to recognize this text, I'm sure, also. It has to do with Jesus discussing with the disciples an illustration about the vine and the branches. And he's speaking of himself being the vine, his children being the branches and such as that, and basically they're all of one plant. But in that context, I want to show you, he, he inter, intermittently, I should say maybe, or invert, inadvertently, he mentions the idea of prayer. Let's read verse 5 to begin with. Uh, John chapter 15 and verse 5. For I am the vine, and ye are the branches, and he that abideth in me and I in him, watch this now, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Last phrase I love. Without me ye can do nothing. Now, I'm using this scripture here, John chapter 15 and verse 5, to say this, that prayer has the ability to activate our faith. When we involve ourselves in prayer to God, our faith is activated. And all I mean by that is that it is set into movement. It's set into order. Now, the reason I even mentioned that is being prayer, if you drop down, that was verse 5 of John chapter 15. If you'll drop just a little bit farther down the page into verse 7, you'll see what's spoken of. And abide in me, and in my words I abide in you. Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Prayer activates our faith, verse 5. But prayer in verse 9 initiates a fellowship that we don't find anywhere else. I have learned, I've been married 18 years. Most of you, I understand, have been married twice that long or whatever. I recognize that. But I have learned in 18 years, it probably took 17 of the 18, and I'm still not a professional at it. I have learned that one of the best things I can do for my wife, and, and likewise she for me, I, I would like her to know, is just to talk, to listen. Now, I'm not a big conversationalist at times. I, I speak uh, in Bible classes and sermons, but in the, in the gist of most of my life, I'd just soon be kind of quiet and over in the corner. But we need to communicate. And just like a husband and wife function better when they communicate, so it is the fellowship with God goes much more smoothly if we communicate with Him. He needs to know, He needs to hear from us, and we're not down to this part yet, but He needs to hear from us what our desires are, even though we already know. He needs to hear from us what our dreams are, what our hopes are, and such as that, even though He already recognizes that. But more than that, guess what? We need to hear from Him. We need to know what he desires. So prayer activates our faith. It initiates our fellowship. And I want to add one right here just for thought. It also motivates our changes. Prayer will motivate you to do better, believe it or not. Let me give you an example. Let's take a teenage boy. I can pick on teenage boys because I was one. You, Some of you, half of you, I guess, were one at one time. You take a teenage boy, he looks across that school classroom and he sees a girl and she catches his eye. He thinks, boy, Miss Whoever or little Sally, uh, Sally's pretty. I like Sally. Well, let's suppose he comes up to Sally and he says, hey, Sally, um, how would you like to go out on a date with me Friday night? And she says, no. Just walks off, no, and walks off. 
man, I don't understand. I, I really don't. And so it goes to his best bud. You know, guys ask their best buddies what to do instead of trying to ask her what it needs to be done. He goes to his buddy and he says, look, I've asked Sally on a date and I don't understand why Sally won't go. And he said, well, I'm going to go on and tell you. Your breath stinks. And he said, oh, I'm, I didn't realize that. He said, yes, it does. And Sally didn't like that. So he goes home and drinks a glass of ice scope before he comes to school the next morning. He fixes that. He goes up to Sally again. He says, hey, Sally, uh, I tell you what, Sally, would you like to go on a date Friday night? And she says, no. She turns him away again. He goes to his friend. Uh, what's, what's the problem with Sally? He says, well, your hair is kind of messed up. It's, it's kind of bushy around the ears. So he goes straight to the barber after school and he gets his hair cut. And on and on this process goes until what happens perhaps one day. He walks up to Sally and asks for a date and she says, yes, what's happened? What's happened is that he has been involved in changing his life incrementally to, to get himself to a point where she is, he, he is acceptable to her. Now, I don't know if you've ever done it. I found myself doing it. It's why I use an example such as that. I pray to God. God doesn't answer immediately or doesn't seem to answer it in my way. And so I think in my mind, this is not always bad to think, by the way. It will help us. I think, well, there must be something wrong in my life. There's probably some area I need to improve in, probably some sin I need to separate myself from, so I'll just make myself better, and I'll ask again and again and again and again until eventually God answers. Now, He may answer in various ways, but He'll answer. Prayer has that ability. There's a promise to claim. Now, look back at our text. We need to pick up more of our text. I mean by that Matthew chapter 7 again. That was verses 7 and 8, but there's more to the context than that. When you think about the process, not only is there a promise to claim, there's likewise a process to follow. There's a certain way which we pray. Now, chapter 6, I'll keep referencing. Chapter 6, verses, um, verses 9 through 13 were, were a very good model, a wonderful pattern given by God how to pray, what words to put together. But I'm not talking about the words. I'm talking about the process. It's threefold. It's tied up in those three words. Ask, seek, and knock. Now, I've been guilty of reading across God's Word before and, and seeing words, certain words, and just thinking, well, I understand that. You know what it means to ask. You ask someone for a favor. You know what you've done. You know what it is to seek out something. You lose your keys. You misplace your wallet. You'll seek that out. You park on the wrong row in Walmart. You'll do the same. You know what it means to knock? You've been to your neighbor's house or maybe you've been, been to your own house one day and forgot your keys inside. You knocked and someone let you in. We, we read across that and say, well, that's, that's what God's talking about. And it is. But what does it really mean to ask? The process here that we're going to go through, the process that God sets for us to follow, this asking has to do with something particular. Number one, to ask is a desire expressed I have had my children my wife has had me do the same I'll use, I'll use the husband wife situation in this I'm sitting around sometimes on a Friday or Saturday night maybe Jennifer's worked that day or whatever's going on we've been busy that day it gets to be around 06, 6.30 I'm hungry, she's hungry we're all hungry maybe there's not much food in the house 
And we sat there. We sat there and we thumb around on the TV a little bit and we talk and we sat there. And we sat there. And finally I say, I'm hungry. And she says, I am too. And we sat there. And we sat there. And finally I say, can we just run to town and get something to eat? And she says, I'm glad you ask. Until we express ourselves to other human beings, those other human beings very well may not have any idea how we feel and what we desire. Now God knows, again, I'm not taking out of context, God knows what we have need of, but God allows us the opportunity to ask, to express our needs, to express our feelings unto Him. We already mentioned Luke 18 and verse 1 where He commanded that that prayer uh, be taken part of. We understand how important that is. And if we're willing to pray for something, we ought to be willing to admit that it's not wrong for us to have. Now, I can't pray for something that is wrong for me to have. But I can pray for anything I desire. If it's important to me, guess what? It's important to God. We need to use this at our disposal, what God has given us. Now, secondarily here, and this is a progressive thing, he says, ask. That is, your desires are expressed. He says, seek. When you think about seeking, again, we say, well, I understand what it is to seek. You know, to seek something is to to look for it, to try to find it, and that's basically what this is. Is it, It is a discovery that is to be experienced. To seek is to make a discovery to be experienced. I've lost things around my house back up. Well, you know this because I've visited with you at least once since this point, but somebody ran through our house about a month ago. Came right through a big walk-in closet we had. Strode everything we owned all the way across the yard. A lot of that we found easily. I mean, come on, your pair of shoes gets knocked 40 feet. They're still there. You can see them. May not be in good shape, but you know that. But then there was a lot of things, especially concerning my wife's jewelry box, which wasn't very valuable, but sentimental, a lot of those rings and earrings and such were never found, probably never will be. But it didn't stop us from looking. We knew that there was something that could be discovered. They didn't just vanish off the face of the earth. They're there somewhere, and they could be, potentially could be found. But what are we looking for with God? Well, I want to say, first of all, we're looking for His presence. We're looking to be with God. Go over the book of James with me for just a moment. We have studied the book of James together, I know, back again about two years ago. But go to James. When you get there, go to James chapter 4. Hebrews, James. James chapter 4. Look with me, if you would, in verse number 8. Here's what it said. It's very simple. We're seeking His presence. Draw nigh unto God. And he will draw nigh unto you. Maya, my my one-year-old, is with us today. She started walking on Friday. Now, she's been toying with that forever. We had had already decided she just don't want to walk. She's not going to walk. She could crawl around and hold on to a pew or hold on to a couch. And as long as she had a hand on something, she seemed to do pretty well. You, You let go. She just sits down and crawls away. Started walking Friday. Let me tell you how it finally happened. It happened when she made one move toward me 
And I made one move toward her. She drew nigh. Likewise did I. The closer we get to God in His presence, the closer we'll know He is to us. That's what's being spoken of here. Seeking. There's a discovery to be experienced. Not only that, we ask. That's the first place. We seek. But then the last one here in this persistent pattern, we knock. Now, why would one, one knock? Well, if you've ever gone to anyone's house, door knocking for the church or just door knocking on a friend's house, uh, sometimes those people are where at in the house. They're standing right by the door looking out, waiting for you to get there. Not always. No, many times they're not even in the same room at the door that you're knocking on. They're in the back of the house. And you knock, and they don't come. And you knock, and they're not there. And you knock again, and they're still not there. And you say, well, I guess so-and-so's not home today. And about the time you can bank on it, about the time you get in your car and close the door, they stand in the front door smiling at you. Where are you going? Come on in. Well, I've been knocking. I didn't hear you. I happened to walk by the window and saw your car in the driveway. I didn't know why you're just sitting there. You know how that works. When we think about this idea of knocking, there is a determination that is likewise expressed. Someone who continues to knock shows how determined they are, how desirous they are that they be heard, that they be recognized, that they be seen. Now, about that idea, ask seek and knock, this is probably, I, I, I've gotten pretty good, not great, but I've gotten pretty good when it comes to prayer about asking God for something. You kind of, you study your Bibles, you, you feel like you know His will, His desire, you have to ask in faith. James would even tell us about that. You ask in faith and see, say, well, here's what I need, God. Here's what would help me in this life, ultimately help me to be in life with you in heaven. And so here's what I need. I'll ask. I've gotten really good about seeking. And that's because I've had prayers, in my mind at least, answered so many times. I suppose if I ask and if it's right in God's sight, it'll eventually come about. And so I'm looking for the answer to that. But I'm not real good at knocking. That's more than likely where many of us fail. Because why? Sometimes we think, well, I've, I've already asked God for that. Cameron is, is the worst now, and I'm, I'm speaking of him in a negative light, but I love him anyway. He is Mr. Persistent, period. He's mildly autistic. He gets something in his mind, and he wants it. Not always bad. We were over at my mother's house yesterday, ate a little bit of barbecue and such, Fourth of July type thing, and she had these, it was a cookie with caramel in the middle and peanut butter and another cookie. Oh, and he hadn't gotten any yet. We were just about to leave. We were just about to go home and go to a fireworks show ultimately. And Cameron said, I want a piece of that. And Jennifer said, I'll get you one in a minute. You, I, can I have that? She said, Cameron, just a minute. She had the baby in her arms. She was trying to move around. We're trying to get packed up to get in the car and leave. Four times within about a minute and a half, he asked. You say, well, I know what happened. You're a good parent. He didn't get it. No, you're wrong. I guess I'm a bad parent. He got it. Why? Because he's persistent. Not trying to reward that necessarily in that instance, but because he's persistent. Now, there's nothing wrong with that biblically. 
I want to give you some examples. You look at what was done by the Phoenician woman. There was a Phoenician woman on one occasion. You can find this particular uh, idea, this text in Matthew chapter 15. What she does, she comes unto Jesus. Jesus is walking by with his disciples, and she cries out. She needs to be healed of something at that point. And she cries out, and they don't pay her any attention. She cries a little bit louder. They don't pay her any attention. Basically, the disciples turn to the woman and say, Look, you need to leave Jesus alone. He's got somewhere to be. He's on the road to so-and-so. He doesn't need to fool with you. Even Jesus, uh, to an extent for a moment, even turned her away. He said, I'm come to the stock of Israel. I'm not here for you Phoenicians, basically. What did she do? She says, you know, Jesus, even a dog, a puppy, gets to eat from the crumbs of a rich man's table. You know what she got out of that? Healing. She kept on. She could have easily been miles back down the road. He could have kept walking. The disciples and he, by that time, had, had seemingly determined to do that. But she was persistent. You think about Jesus himself. Now, this proves that it's not wrong to be persistent, to continue to knock. You think about Jesus himself when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to God. The Bible says he prayed the same prayer on three occasions, all of which had to do with basically that God's will be done and to remove this cup or let this cup pass from me. You think Jesus was wrong? I, I know that we don't. We don't, know that, we don't think that Jesus was wrong to pray and ask for the same thing three different times. No, he wasn't. You think the apostle Paul, he prayed to God likewise. I don't know if there's anything uh, particularly about the number, but he prayed. He said thrice on three occasions he prayed that the thorn of his flesh even be removed. All three examples, there are many more. There was a widow, an example of a widow who was coming, and she comes to the king, and she asked that this uh, wrong be, be uh, justified, that it had been done to her over and over. And it even says there, because of her persistence, he rewarded her. We ask, yes. We seek, yes. And we knock. I want to take you to a parallel passage. We're in the book of Matthew. We're seeing Matthew's account, particularly verses 7 and 8, Matthew chapter 7. But I want to take you over to a parallel account of this. It's found in the book of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 11. You'll be familiar with this because what we're reading is the same thought, the same process, the same record or recollection, I guess. In verse number 5, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5. Well, let's drop down for just a moment. Let's drop down to verse 10. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 10. Look at the phraseology that Luke, used, or the Luke uses here. I'm in Luke now. I said Matthew twice, I know. Remove from Matthew to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 11 and verse 10, or 9 and 10. And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be open to you. Sound familiar? It's exactly the same terms. The next verse, verse 10, said, For everyone that asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Recognize that? Same terms. That's verse 9 and 10. Now back up, if you would, to verse 5. In the context. And he said unto him, Which of you having a friend, that having a friend, and it shall go unto you at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in the journey, and is coming to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he, and, and, and he from when he shall answer, say, Trouble me not, 
For the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. And I say unto you, that he that will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because he is of, uh, because of his, here's a King James word, importuity, importuity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. Now, I want to look at that word importuity. What in the world does importuity mean? Now, how many, who used that yesterday? Last week, none of us. Importuity means shameless persistence. Literally. Now the account here is simple. I'll put it just back like it was, but in different terms. A man comes to you in the middle of the night. He knocks on your door at midnight, a friend, and he says, I need to borrow some bread. What do you need bread for? Well, my friend stopped by to visit, and I'm eating bread for my friend's friend. You say, get away, man. The children are in bed. They're all asleep. You can't bother us. Not in the middle of the night. You can't expect anything from me. And he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks. And finally, you do what? Take all the bread I've got. Now in our Lord's day, remember, oftentimes they kept the animals in the room. Can you imagine a sheep or a cow begin to bay or to move with the children trying to sleep in the house? Because someone won't leave you alone at the door. Persistence. There is a promise to claim. Yes, that's true. There likewise in this idea is a process to follow because of this. There is a provision to enjoy. If you go back over to our text, and I mean by that Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. He spoke in that illustration about a man who comes and asks bread. He said, if you ask for bread, would you give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Why is that? Because God himself gives good gifts. And any man who wants to likewise be good would give the same good gifts. And that's what God intends. What do we enjoy when we ask God of things in prayer? Well, you can understand he, he gives us accurate, first of all, accurate provisions. God doesn't give us something that we do not ask for. He gives us what we ask for. Now, sometimes in different ways, sometimes in different means, and we don't understand it. You know, we've all seen the little, I, I don't know if you call it a poem, but it illustrates good things. Someone says, well, I asked for patience and he gave me trials, you know, that kind of thing. But he gave us what we needed. If we ask of God, and this is the exact illustration, if we say God, unto God or unto a friend, we need bread. He's not going to give us a stone to choke on. We ask for a fish to eat. He's not going to give us a serpent that will take our lives. He's desirous that we live on spiritually. God's provisions are accurate. He gives us what we need when we need it, but they're also abundant. If you look all the way down into verse 11, for if you being evil, I'm rereading it again, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much, here's the key word, more shall your Father which is in heaven give you good things to them that ask Him. God gives more. Now we've all been in the position, at least we wanted to be, we tried to be, let's say around birthday time for a child, maybe Christmas, but birthday time is an example. A child has a birthday. What do you want to do? What do most parents want to do or grandparents? They want to give them a gift. And they really want to give them the best gift that they can. And one of the things I've learned, and I, I guess I learned this from myself, although you try to forget our childhoods, our children are different, you know, but I can remember as a child, you were most happy if you got what you had asked for. 
Now, that wasn't always possible. Some of you ask for a pony, you've never been on a horse in your life. Some ask for bicycles, and, and you, never, you never even learned to ride one. But you were most happy or most pleased when you got what you'd asked for. You also were most pleased when you got all that you asked for. Now, that, that certainly didn't always happen. But what he's saying here is with God it does. Now, we don't need to leave this, and we're, we're done in our time, but I do want to mention this. God doesn't always answer prayers exactly the way that we want him to. Sometimes he says yes, and those moments are, can, can be exciting. But sometimes he says no. Sometimes we pray and say, God, I, I need you to remove this illness from my family member or, or bless me in this area because I'm having trouble. I'm, I'm struggling right now. And sometimes he just, he just seems to say no. I've seen, I continue to use my children, for example. I've seen my daughter ask for something and I say no. And she says, well, you didn't answer. I just did. That was it. Sometimes, seemingly, God just simply says, not now. Just wait. And then sometimes God simply says, oh, I'm giving it. It'll be just a little bit different than you supposed. And you could add probably other scenarios to that, but that's the basics. Friends, this congregation here, and I mean by that the church at Weaver. I'm not talking about the church at anywhere else, at Jacksonville or, or anywhere else. The church at Weaver impresses me because of its growth. And one of the reasons it continues to grow the way it does, in faith especially, is because of her ability, your ability, to pray. We need all over, we need more and more. We need a praying church to be found in every location. What a blessing it is. There's a promise to claim. There's a process to follow. But friends, there are great provisions to be enjoyed by those who pray. I appreciate your attention in this opportunity.